Hello and welcome back to this podcast series, Struggling with Judgment. My name is David Ingall and I'm a preacher, pastor and filmmaker. And this is the second episode in our series and it's called Fixing What is Broken. I used to live and be the pastor of a church in the city of London. One of the quirks of living and working there was that my area often seemed to feature on the news. And that's because just across the road from our church was London's most famous law court the Old Bailey. It's where many of the most serious or high-profile criminal cases end up, from phone hacking to murder or terrorism. Chances are, if you heard about it on the news, it would be happening there. And on top of the court is a famous statue of justice. She holds a set of scales in one hand to show that justice is fair, but in the other, she holds the sword of judgment. And when we hear about the sort of cases that end up at the Old Bailey, innocent people killed and lives torn apart, something within us cries out for justice, cries out for judgment. If a murderer walks free or a terrorist is given too short a sentence, we're outraged and we want people to bear the responsibility for their crimes. But in most other areas of life and culture, we have a very different reaction to judgment. In fact, it's almost become a dirty word. It seems to stand for everything we don't want to be. And the words of our age are love or tolerance, and judgment just seems harsh and unreasonable. And the Dalai Lama probably spoke for most people today when he said that love is the absence of judgment. And yet, as we turn to the Bible, we find a very different vision, both of love and of the place of judgment. Because again and again, we're told both that God is love and that God is a God of judgment. And that's a combination that most people, including most Christians, including me, find hard. How is that possible? How could God be both love and judge? Well, the difference between how we normally think of judgment And how we think of judgment in a place like the Old Bailey, when considering the sorts of crimes that end up there, is, I think, a helpful chink of light. When I used to look across the road to the Old Bailey each morning, I'd be reminded that actually most of us do believe in judgment some of the time. And the key difference between the things that are being looked at in the Old Bailey and the rest of life is that most of the time, I think we don't think that there's anything to judge. I mean, yes, we know we're not perfect, but the things that we do wrong just don't seem that big a deal. We try to live a good life, not to hurt people, to follow some form of moral code. Surely that's enough. Surely we don't deserve to be judged. And actually, when you put it like that, you quickly realise that the issue we have here It's not about judgment, it's about sin. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, all of us deserve judgment. And if we want to get our minds and hearts around judgment, then actually that's what we need to work through. And so in this film and the couple that follow it, we're going to spend some time reflecting on some of the images and ideas that the Bible gives us to help us grasp what is really going on with sin. 
and why therefore actually that makes judgment something which is okay, even necessary. In the last film, we reflected on how in the Bible, judgment always has a positive angle. It's about putting things right. You might say about fixing things. And that draws me to a helpful illustration that most of us will be familiar with, a garage. Mechanics working on cars that have broken down and need fixing. And until the brakes are sorted or the engine repaired, the car simply won't work. Or worse, it'll be dangerous. And that image of something that no longer works properly, something that's broken, is one that the Bible uses to describe our sin. In fact, the Hebrew word for righteousness, tzedek, can actually be used of objects or things that are working as they should be. And so if we're not righteous, we are quite literally broken. To show what that means, I want us to look at one of the most brilliant little exposés of sin in the Bible. And it's the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. It's a controversial passage, and most of the time when we talk about it, our focus is all about on whether and how it is true. But I want to skip right round that debate and look at what it shows us about sin. And actually, whether you believe that it's historically true, or you view it as a paradigm or parable, either way, we still learn lots about how sin works. And it's a famous story, and most people could probably sketch out a broad outline of what happens. Adam and Eve sin by disobeying God and eating fruit from the tree that they've been told not to eat from. God finds out and he punishes them for it by throwing them out of the garden and cursing them and all their descendants. Well, when you sum it up like that, it seems outrageously harsh. Adam and Eve commit this seemingly fairly minor transgression, and then God goes nuclear with the punishment options. Why can't God just forgive them? Why doesn't he just give them a second chance or let it go? And in some ways, those questions and that reaction sum up our whole attitude to sin and judgment. The whole thing seems an overreaction and also totally out of character with the God of love and forgiveness that we read about elsewhere in scripture. But that reaction is based on a misreading of the account in Genesis 3. My summary of the story may be familiar to most of us, but it also misses out one of the most important parts of the story. It misses out the bit between Adam and Eve's sin and God's punishment. Listen to it in Genesis 3 verses 7 to 12. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I don't know if you spotted it, but before God re-enters the story, everything has already gone disastrously wrong. And whatever options there are at this point, pretending that nothing's happened or just carrying on as before, is therefore no longer possible. Let me unpack that. At the heart of the vision of life in these chapters is relationship. 
Relationship between us and God and relationships with each other, in this case, Adam and Eve. And of course, that resonates with the rest of Scripture. The two greatest commandments are to love God and to love our neighbour. And so far in the story, God hasn't actually reacted to what Adam and Eve have done at all, beyond asking a simple question. There's been no curse, no punishment, no judgment. But those core relationships have already been destroyed. It all seems to start with Adam and Eve's relationship with each other. We read that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. Now, physically, nothing's changed. They must have known before that they weren't wearing any clothes. But somehow they realise their nakedness in a new way. There's a new self-consciousness, a new sense of shame and vulnerability with the other. And they react by stitching together some fig leaves and trying to cover up, trying to put barriers between them. And as we continue, we discover that this isn't just some simple misunderstanding. They no longer trust each other, and it quickly becomes clear why. When God asks Adam what is going on, he immediately tries to shift the blame onto Eve. There's a betrayal as he tries to wriggle out of any responsibility and leave her to face the consequences on her own. And this perfect human relationship is now broken and mired in shame, blame and recrimination. But it's not just that relationship that goes wrong. Adam and Eve's relationship with God is also destroyed in that one moment of sin. There's a tragic beauty to the description of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It tells of a time when our relationship with God was normal, simple and natural. In verse 8, we discover that God is still there, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But Adam and Eve can no longer join him. They hid from the Lord God. And their only experience of life to this point has been of God's blessings. And yet now suddenly they are afraid of him, cringing and ashamed in the shadows because of what they've done. So the two relationships which are at the heart of this vision of paradise are relationships with God and each other are now catastrophically broken. Adam and Eve are no longer the perfect, noble, loving people that they were created to be. and Instead, they're fearful, ashamed and hypocritical, quick to blame and slow to trust. And friends, that is what my sin does to me. That is what your sin does to you. It breaks us. It smudges and destroys what we were designed to be. And actually worse, it overflows and spills out onto those around us. Adam and Eve are both also broken and impacted by the other person's sin. And so often we want to ignore sin. But I think that's because we don't realise what we've lost. My sin is what stops me and stops you from enjoying perfection, paradise, a life of flourishing and rejoicing at every turn. And all the bitterness, the pain and the sorrow of this grey world we live in all ultimately run back to sin. So this is vast. This is a huge deal. So what does God do? Well, the immediate answer is a message of judgment, a difficult message to hear. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and they're subjected to pain and frustration. They will experience death. 
And yet, even in the midst of that heavy word, there is a message of hope. God promises the serpent, the devil, who tempted them to sin, that the seed of the woman will one day crush his head. And in that promise, we catch the first tantalising glimpse of salvation of Jesus. I don't think that the judgment and banishment from Eden is simply an arbitrary or vindictive punishment, because actually it limits the reach and spread of the poison. But it is also the beginning of God's plan for salvation and redemption and restoration, the story and plan of the rest of the Bible. And it's a long story, and it's marred and disfigured by the ruinous consequences of our sin, but it finishes once more in paradise. This time not in a garden, but in a city, a place unmarked now by death or mourning or crying or pain. A paradise in which we can know God in our midst and in which life will at last be all that we long for it to be. Perfect, full, overflowing with blessings and joy. You can read all about it in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 and it's glorious. And it can include us. Because of what Jesus has done, because he drank the dregs of the full horror of our sin on the cross and then rose victorious the other side, because he crushed the head of the serpent, the devil, and dealt with all the sin and the brokenness of this world. I, me, broken, sinful, unworthy as I am, I can be part of it. I can be fixed. I can know paradise. I can know God. And friends, so can you. Amen.